Greetings, family. Uh-oh. <laughs> this is Iyapo Moyende Ngina, also known as Cassandra. And um, I am back with the continuation of the reading of the great Cosmic Mother, Rediscovering the Religion of the Earth by Monica Zhu and Barbara Moore. Now, um, for those who may have tuned in for the first two chapters, I won't be giving any heavy um, overviews. I'll be looking back and forth because I'm broadcasting live in multiple areas right now. But the purpose of this is to do straight read-throughs of the Great Cosmic Mother. In the description below is a link to the book club that we're initiating on Facebook, right? And with the details for how to participate in the workshops that are tied to the book club. So um, I am going to be reading this book for those who might be tuning in for the first time. I will be reading this book straight through every day except Sundays <clears throat> to get through it. It's got 52 chapters. It's a very long book. This will be my second time reading the book live, my fourth time reading the book overall. It is undoubtedly one of the most important books of the day. <clears throat> so again, for those that are just tuning in, the great cosmic mother rediscovering the religion of the earth. Um, the book is available online for free as a PDF. Just Google the title of the book. Um, however, apparently the book pages from the book and the book pages from the book online don't link up. So you'll really have to pay attention um, from the beginning of each chapter not to get lost. Okay, so with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and begin the reading today, which starts with chapter three. We'll be reading chapter three through five, the first chapter of chapter three being the original Black Mother. <clears throat> it is possible that the religious ideas of ancient Crete and Egypt originated in Black Africa. During 17,000 to, to 6,000 BC, the Sahara was a rich and fertile land and a great civilization flourished there. Images of the horned goddess who became Isis of Egypt have been found in the caves on now inaccessible, uh, on a now inaccessible plateau in the center of what is now the Sahara Desert. When the earlier fertile land dried out, probably as a result of climate change, the people spread out from the, from this center and wherever they settled, they brought with them the religion of the black goddess, the great mother of Africa. Great importance has always been given to the queen mother across the continent of Africa. The original black goddess was regarded as bisexual, the instrument of her own fertility. She was the ancient witch who carried a snake in her belly. Africans worshipped her many manifestations. The creator of the gods of Dahomey, for example, was Maulisa, imaged as a serpent. Maulisa was both female and male, self-fertilizing, seen as the earth and the rainbow. Africans believe that the earth is ultimately more powerful than the sky and its gods. The sky can withhold rain, but earth is the source of life of the life force itself. The Gaia hypothesis of modern environmental science confirms this ancient concept. The sky, with all of its dramatic life-giving movement, is in fact created by the earth. 
the envelope of air and moisture surrounding us is really the earth's breathing. As in the ancient African beliefs, the sky gods are creations of Mother Earth. She breathes them out and can breathe them back in again. Great work needs to be done in the study of indigenous African mythologies and religious beliefs, especially in linking these with the development of the other world religions. For just as physical humankind probably began in Africa, so no doubt did our concepts and images of the sacred originate there. One black historian who has investigated African, the African origins of Egyptian, Mediterranean, and Near Eastern religions, <clears throat> including Christianity, is John, uh, is John G. Jackson. Uh, though his 1972 work on African origins of world culture is entitled Man, God, and Civilization, Jackson fully acknowledged the, matri the matriarchal origins and influences of African society. He quotes Lewis H. Morgan, Sir James G. Fraser, and Robert Griffalt, and points out that their investigations of early group marriage and also of the primacy of lunar-based religions throughout the world are confirmed by early African matrifocal cultures. Greetings to everyone tuning in. Not only the royal families of Egypt were matriarchal, but also all the common people. The Greek historian Diordius Siculus, uh, circa 100 BC, wrote of the Egyptians, quote, among private citizens, the husband, by the terms of the marriage of agreement, appertains to the wife, it is, and it is stipulated between them that the man shall obey the woman in all things, end quote. As Jackson notes, quote, these customs seem strange to the Greeks, but they were normal features of African societies. Jackson has devoted his life's work to pointing out that these ancient African societies were neither primitive nor underdeveloped but formed the creative cradle of the entire world. For example, of early, of early technologies, remains, uh, <clears throat> remains of graded roads and cultivation terraces are found throughout Uganda, Kenya, and Tanzania, and there are megalithic structures in West Africa. In the opinion of many anthropologists, including Franz Boas, iron smelting originated in Central Africa. The ancient people of Mashanaland in Zimbabwe were extensive miners and iron workers. Herodias reported that iron tools were used in building the Egyptian pyramids, and these tools were mined and smelted in Africa. Another example is writing. Sir Wallace Budge, renowned Egyptian scholar, scholar, believed it was clear that Egyptian hieroglyphs derived from symbols used by native Africans on painted pots and boat banners. We and we must add that the pottery painters and banner makers were women. In fact, the legendary Atlantis could have been West Africa. The Greek historian Diodius Siculus referred to the Western Ethiopians as Atlanteans. Trade between the trade between sixth century BC Phoenicians and Ethiopians living on an Atlantic Islands called Cerne or Kerne, the Canary Islands, possibly, she writes that in, uh, <clears throat> with, a <clears throat> with a question mark, beyond the pillars of Hercules is recorded. Leo Frobenius, 
the great 20th century archaeological explorer of Africa was convinced that Atlantis had been located on the West African coast. In Yoruba land, he found remains of great palaces and statues and heard the Yoruba, the Yoruba people recount legends of an ancient royal city and its palace with gold walls, which in the past sank beneath waves, uh, Fribonius concluded. Yoruba, with its channeled network of lakes, uh, lakes on the coast and the reaches of the Niger, Yoruba, whose uh, peculiarities are not inadequately depicted in the Platonic account. This Yoruba, I assert, um, and this is a quote by the um, the historian. This Europe, this Europe, I I assert, is Atlantis, the home of Poseidon's territory, the sea god, by them named Olokun, the land of peoples of whom Solon declared they had even extended their lordship over Egypt and Terenay. End quote. Frobenius Frobenius also saw links physical and cultural between the West African Europeans and the culture of the Mayans in Central America. In, in Africa and the discovery of America, Harvard professor Leo Weiner also traced this African Mayan connection, finding documented evidence that in pre-Columbian times, West African mariners and traders made over 50 voyages across the Atlantic Ocean to Central America. This connection would explain the, the early Olmec statuary found in the Veracruz region of Mexico with its clearly Negroid features and also the legend that Mayan glyphs were originated by the Olmecs. In connection with ancient West African mariners, it's also interesting to note that, according to Irish historical legends, the Celtic island was invaded and dominated for a time by sea rovers from northwest Africa and uh, from northwest Africa called Fomorians. And on the other side of Europe and India, evidence shows that the early inhabitants of India, the Dravidians, were black Africans with Ethioid features. These Dravidians uh, founded the first Indian civilization in the Indus Valley with large cities, two-story brick houses, bathrooms with drains leading to brick sewers under the streets. The Dravidians were extremely skilled in iron technology. A Dravidian-made column of welded iron in a temple courtyard in Delhi has stood for over 4,000 years without showing any rust. The renowned Damascus blades were made of this Dravidian iron. And once again, the pictographic uh, script of 200 signs used by these 4th century B.C. Dravidians is almost identical to that found carved in the ruins of Easter Island, 2,000 miles west of Chile in the Pacific Ocean. All this far-flung evidence supports the probability that the ancient Africans were global mariners, traders, and settlers, sailing both west and east, the Atlantic and the Pacific, and spreading their advanced culture elsewhere like seeds. And we must remember that this was a matriarchal culture. What all these scholars of Africa and their data are telling us is that human, excuse me, that human development does not, um, does not precede, proceed in a straight line from the primitive to the advanced. Nothing in nature proceeds in straight, nothing in nature proceeds in straight lines, but in circles. And human cultures too, like individual human beings, go through cycles of development and regression. Empires do rise and fall and cultures that now appear primitive or never developed could well be sitting 
on the rubble of great past civilizations once built by their ancestors, once flourishing and then disintegrating under the multitudes of, of pressures. This point is important for women investigating the past existence of matriarchies, as well as for students of ancient African, ancient African glories. For the same patterns apply to both. The contemporary Western world, ruled by an essentially white patriarchal elite, sees itself as the peak of human, uh, sees itself as the peak of human development. In its linear view, all past cultures were by nature inferior simply because they came earlier in time and existed mainly not on their own right or in their own terms, but as mere steps on a grand stairway leading up to the supreme white Western meldom. This linear developmental process is rarely questioned. No more than white male dominance is questioned. In the official view, it is, it just comes from God or derives from Newton or the internal combustion engine confronted with, with evidence from archaeology, anthropology, mythology, strange dreams of the evidence of great past cultures, whether of black Africans or of Central American Mayans or of Mediterranean matriarchies, for example, in uh, Anatolia, Crete, Malta, and Eritrea, Eritrea, the historical tendency of white patriarchy has been absolutely to deny these early cultures and mock their evidence or if they can't be denied, to treat them with chauvinistic contempt as some form of lavish barbarism. The, um, and the detractors quickly rushed to point out that these early cultures, despite their aesthetic and spiritual qualities, were limited in technology, i.e. didn't have smog or home computers or practiced human sacrifice as though 20th century Western civilizations don't, or some other stigma of inferiority, which always adds up to saying they weren't us. No, they weren't, but they were viable cultures within their own terms. And because they were earlier in time, most of the arts, crafts, technologies, and religious insights we boast about were invented by them. When historians like John, John G. Jackson point out that many contemporary African village people live among the ruins of ancient graded roads, farm terraces, iron smelters, and megalithic monuments, which they no longer use or would not even know how to construct. They are referring to a phenomenon known as cultural regression. People can go backward in cultural and intellectual development as well as forward, as any student of European of the European Dark Ages can testify. Backwards or forwards, the movement is always along a spiral, not a straight line. Many factors can be responsible for such a regression, including climate change, environmental damage from new technologies, i.e. cattle grazing, help to create deserts, and internal cultural change. By all accounts, the major cause of cultural regression during the past 2000 years has been political invasion and the cultural colonialism that follows. The invaders tried to destroy the existing social forms by force and punitive colonial practices and attempt to impose their own cultural and religious patterns on the conquered. Culture is a people's own vision of themselves in relation to the world created by themselves through the blood continuity of time and space, political evade, political invasion via cultural colonialism weakens the creative will of the conquered by destroying the people's coherent vision of themselves. 
Woo! Guns, police, and the invaders' law help in this process, but the imposition of alien cultural symbols and religious ideas are the most effective tools in the long run for obliterating or distorting a people's self-image because they are aimed at the most intimate parts of human beings, sex, and spirit. By the time European and Arabic slave traders and colonial invaders reached Africa, that continent's great period of cultural development and extension had peaked, but the matriarchal social patterns, at least along the West Coast, were still intact. And the people still worshipped the black and the people still worshipped black goddesses with bisexual powers and still participated in the cyclic processes of Mother Earth as a sacred year cycle ritual. And it was these matrifocal social and kinship patterns and these goddess oriented spiritual participants that the colonist invaders had to break in order to impose imperialist domination and exploited exploit exploitative slavery on the people. Whenever Islam or Christianity impinged on the life of the Af of the Africans, it was introduced by the invaders in whose interest it was to detach the local inhabitants from the dependency on the rules of behavior demanded by agricultural and seasonal change. This pattern, the paradigm of uh, patriarchal imperialism, we find repeated again and again throughout the world in Africa and Asia and South and North America. What many people don't realize is that this same pattern was successfully imposed by imperial Rome on its own, um, on its own colony Europe at the beginning of the Christian era, a process we will investigate in chapter, in part four. To break up the ancient paternal kinship groupings and the sacred life pattern they followed for the purpose of robbing the native people of their land, stealing the earth's raw resources and exploiting human labor, the colonial armies sent the missionaries in to introduce the abstract and alien concepts of the father right and a father God who is the enemy of the great mother. Christian missionaries preaching of the heavenly father and his son and Muslims carrying the message of Allah and his prophet Muhammad performed the same colonizing functions. They found the mother's people who were alive and well within a holistic now, and they denounced these people's ways and redefined them as backwards children of a distant, aloof, paternalistic power. All exploitation follows quite easily and self-righteously from such a redefinition. Colonist, uh, colonist powers really convince themselves that they are doing their victims a favor, lifting them up from Mother Earth through whips, degradations, imprisonments, hunger, and slaughter, so that they may glimpse through tears a far-off shining palace, the abode of the Heavenly Father, i.e. exploiting home country. Imperialist colonialism always sees itself officially as an instrument of spiritual enlightenment. What this means in practice is that the mother, the people's blood identity is denounced in the same, in the name of some superior father God who always happens to live somewhere else. Because in the maternal cultures, the father is a social rather than a biological role. And because this father role is defined in terms of its relation to the mother, i.e. her brother or her uncle, this 
enforced redefinition brutally attempts to pull the ontological rug out from under all basic social relationships and the emotions surrounding them. We must consider the effects of this. In some matrifocal cultures, such as the pre-Aryan Tota people of India, who, were, who practice polyandry, a woman will choose one among her many husbands to be the social father for, a, her, for her child. The more common practice is for the mother's brother to act as the social father. In these arrangements, the man acting as father must win the children's affection and respect. He cannot accept, he cannot accept it as his right. He protects and cherishes the children among some people receiving them into his arms when they are born. But they are not his in the sense that he is seen to have had a share in their physical procreation. Okay. Among the most uh, preliterate people, as among the ancient Paleolithic and Neolithic peoples, the man's role in procreation is seen as one of opening the womb, but it is believed that children are placed in the mother's womb by spirits, perhaps the returning spirits of dead kin. The man cannot relate to the children as his property. In other words, they come from the mother, through the mother, and belong to the spirit world. They are fewer, there are fewer emotional conflicts in such cultures. The neurosis-producing, ego-festering, hothouse atmosphere of the Victorian-type nuclear family is entirely avoided. After spending early childhood close to the mother's body, the young child then moves out into the group's life, guided by the social father. The child begins to the whole, uh, the child belongs to the whole people and feels this belonging. Because he does not relate egotistically or possessively to the children, the social father is much better prepared to let his own nurturing talents truly develop. There is no question of property right, personal ambition, economic responsibility, sexual jealousy, or social status involved in his relationship to women and children. These cultures are not perfect, but the notorious soap opera of Western domestic life is completely avoided. Most of all, these matrifocal cultures weave a webwork of non-possessive intergroup relationships, which support a growing being through every phase and crisis of unfolding life. Colonialism tries to rip this network apart with the auxiliary fire of patriarchal concepts, concepts of women's inferiority, of misogynistic and anti-sex morality, of possessive fatherhood, of competitive greed and alienated individualism, and of women, children, and land existing as the property of dominant males. A major rip involves splitting the human spirit away from the Mother Earth and her cyclic processes and forcibly reattaching this sundered spirit to the sky i.e. to some aloof and abstract source of dominance and power. A result of all of this is the destruction of a people's blood memory. Woo! It's past identity, especially since colonized people tend to keep oral histories and patriarchy insists that only written, written down history is real history. As Franz Fanon says in The Wretched of the Earth, quote, colonialism is not simply content to impose its rule upon the present and the future of the dominated country. Colonialism is not satisfied merely with holding a people in its grip and emptying the native's brain of all form and content. By a kind of perverted logic, 
It turns to the past of the oppressed peoples and distorts, disfigures, and destroys that past. This work of devaluing pre-colonial history takes on a dialectical significance today, end quote. Colonialism is a form of vampirism that empowers and bloats the self-image of the colonizing empire by draining the life energy of the colonized people just enough blood left to allow the colonial, the colonial subject to perform a day's work for the objective of empire. Oh, my God. Yo, I'm going to read that again. Colonialism is a form of vampirism that empowers and bloats the self-image of the colonizing empire by draining the life energies of the colonized people. Just enough blood is left to allow the colonial subject to perform a day's work for the objective of empire. And these drained energies are not only of the present and the future, but of the past, of memory itself, the continuity of identity of a people and of each individual who is colonized. No one should recognize this process better than women. For the female sex has functioned as a colony of organized patriarchal power for several thousand years now. Our brains have been emptied of emptied out of all memory of our own cultural history, and the colonizing power systematically denies such a history ever existed. The colonizing power mocks our attempts to rediscover and celebrate our ancient matriarchies as reality. In the past, women have had to accept this enforced female amnesia as normal, and many contemporary women continue to believe the female sex has existed always and uh, always as an auxiliary to the male-dominated world order. But we continue to dig in the ruins, seeking the energy of memory, believing that the reconstruction of women's ancient history has a revolutionary potential equal to that of any political movement today. One interesting fact in the reconstruction of both African history, specifically and ancient matriarchies generally, is that there was a great explosion of scholarly interest in these subjects between the two world wars, between 1920 and the mid-1930s. <clears throat> Helen Diner, Robert Griffalt, Margaret Murray and Jesse Weston were passionately digging up evidence of women's ancient cultures and religions, building on Jane, El Jane Ellen Harrison's great work of the 1910s. During the same period, W.E.B. Du Bois, Carter G. Woodson, Leo Reiner, and the, and the German Eugene George, among others, were exploring Black African history, building on the 1913 published work of Frobenius, uh, and the work of Joseph McCabe, who explored pre-Christian world history, including ancient Africa, ancient African history from 1917 to 1935. Because ancient women's cultures existed everywhere, including Africa, and because Africa was originally matriarchal, there was a great deal of overlap in some of these studies, with most students reaching the same conclusions. Women, and furthermore, dark women, were the originators of most of what we know as human culture today. With the, uh, with the eruption of World War II, these studies were cut off and they were never picked up again, at least in the mainstream academic world. Since the 1950s, all research into women's past history as well as into Black African history has been initiated and carried through by highly motivated independent women and Black researchers functioning outside the academic establishment and in an atmosphere of subversive investigation. 
And in our sub-ROSA research, we have found these great pioneering works of the 1920s and 1930s co-signed to the academic dustbins as eccentric, non-reputable histories. What was the devastating effect of World War II on these earlier studies? Apparently, they, uh, the reputed alignment of Hitler and Nazism with paganism has had long-lasting results. Oh, oh my goodness. Long-lasting results. They are still equated in many minds, especially in the United States. Pagan remains a code word for everything evil, brutal, and willfully destructive, i.e. a code word for Nazism. Seen as a deliberate revival of the pre-Christian orgiastic uh, bloodthirsty Teutonic spirit. This equation occurs despite William Reich's clear and irrefutable analysis of German Nazism as a predictable eruption of puritanical patriarchal culture. People who indulged in 500 years of inquisition led both by Catholic and Protestant churchmen, jurists, and local magistrates erupted again two centuries later in the Nazism of the 1930s. As we all show later, as we will show later, the European Inquisition and German Nazism were based on the same patriarchal principles and used the same hysterical scapegoating and mass manipulation techniques. I.e., German Nazism was an expression of European Christian development and cannot in any historic sense be blamed on pre-Christian paganism. Nevertheless, the equation has occurred, and this, combined with Western sexism and racism, with their chronic fears of the dark and the contaminating female and the lurking bestial jungle forces, has created an official academic as well as public hostility toward any serious investigation of the pagan, i.e. the non-Christian, the non-white, and the non-good. This hostility has been the excuse, if not the motivation, for a general refusal to recognize the importance of research into both Af ancient African cultures and ancient matriarchies. The pagan, the female, the dark are still interpreted um, as attributes of the devil, and the desire of too many people is still to push them out of sight and out of mind. In one area alone, Westerns, Westerners allow themselves to explore this material, <clears throat> to explore the pagan, the dark, and the female, and to admit its familiarity, its intimate familiarity as the stuff of dreams. This is the area of psychoanalytical and in particular Jungian study. Eric Newman, um, especially in the Great Mother, an analysis of the archetype, has gathered together powerful statues, paintings, and other icons of great goddess as she was worshipped for thousands of years worldwide and attempted to analyze the meaning of her many manifestations as good mother, terrible mother, white and black mother, lady of the beasts and plants, and so forth. To avoid the controversial existence of real matriarchies, Newman and other Jungians say it is not relevant whether... A belief in the goddess arises out of a society shaped by women or men, but they uh, but they clearly assume the beliefs as well as all these icons were shaped by men. Uh, the great mother exists for them as an archetype only, as the classic mental object of the male mind struggling to develop and understand itself. 
the real historical existence of real matriarchies in which women created goddess symbols and images out of their own female experience, worshipped by women and men alike. This interpretation would be revolutionary and Jungians go out of their way to avoid politics. Their studies concentrate exclusively on the individual in isolation, a solipsistic uh, paradigm deriving from the privileged economic status of both the analyst and the client. Focusing on the disconnected individual ego in the modern world, they cannot understand the political content of the ancient myths, their economic and social backgrounds, and the female communal environment for which, from which they emerged. Also, using without question the 19th century developmental models of inevitable and linear progress, Jungians theorized that mother goddess religions, if they existed, existed only near the temporal origins of human culture. Therefore, they must express only the infancy of the race or of the individual psyche. Psychoanalytical arrogance corresponds to Christian theology's view of all pagan religions as spiritually underdeveloped by positing mother goddess archetypes are as infantile or as inchoate subconscious material. When Jungians say that unconscious, that the unconscious belongs to the realm of the mother, they are right, but they do not draw the enormous socio-political conclusions for this. Quote, Contemporary man is possessed by powers that are beyond his control. His gods and demons have not disappeared at all. They have merely got new names. They keep him on the run with uh, with restlessness, vague apprehensions, psychological complications, and insatiable need for pills, alcohol, tobacco, food, and above all, a large array of neuroses, end quote. Modern sickness is that of disconnection. The ego, unable to feel an organic part of the world, except via chemical or popular culture addictions. But when the leader, but when the healers, the physicians of mind and body do not know themselves what it is we need to be connected, how can they solve the syndrome of disconnection? Oh, 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 oh. Um, pause. I have to mark this. This is going to be. This is going to be in my Pluto returns workshop. Yes, it is. Let's see. Okay, here we go. All right, I'm gonna read that again. Uh, I said I wasn't going to do any commentary, but I'm not commentary, but I'm going to read that again. Modern sickness is that of disconnection. The ego unable to feel an organic part of the world, except via chemical or popular cultural addictions. But when the healers, the physicians of mind and body do not know themselves what it is we need to be connected to, how can they solve the syndrome of disconnection? When the ego lets itself go, sinks down into the oceanic all-oneness of the beginning and its peace, the shrinks call this regression. They have virtually defined 
mature mindedness as a state of permanent alienation. The I chronically differentiated from the all when this amounts, uh, what this amounts to is that, that the mature mind is the male mind rejecting his mother within Western culture, whenever the doors of perception open ever so little to let us catch a glimpse of the holographic cosmic mind within us, we are in danger of being locked up for psychiatric observation and given tranquilizers and other, quote, cures. The established patriarchal institutions all have a vested interest in keeping the individual mind disconnected from the experience of cosmic oneness because this disconnection is patriarchy. The bulk of patriarchal industries, drugs, alcohol, entertainment media, fashion and cosmetics, pornography, the tourist business, polyester suited politics, drive-in religious sermons, interstate freeway systems, you name it, exists and profits solely by selling momentary diversions to multitudes of quietly desperate people seeking an anesthetic escape from the pain of personal alienation. What in ancient times was experienced as super consciousness within which we perceive the I thou of the ego dissolving into the cosmic being of oneness and whereby we received understanding, wisdom, transcending dualism, magic perception and healing powers is now wholly submerged within us and termed the unconscious. And the the psychotherapeutic establishment, including Jungians, portray this unconscious as essentially a frightening and threatening realm, the dark jungle within, the place of orgiastic desires, cannibal land, the black hairy forest full of beasties, i.e. the pagan, the female, the dark. A ring of terror is placed around the unconscious for patriarchal political reasons to keep us in a permanent state of fear and distrust in regard to our own innermost beings (coughs) and vis-a-vis the vast cosmos. Patriarchy manipulates and profits from this chronic state of fear and alienation. And Western religious and social history can be read as one long attempt to repress the cosmic female by keeping this fearful alienation institutionally alive and intact. Quote, students of mythology find that when the feminine principle is subjected to sustained attack, as it was from the medieval Christian authorities, it often quietly submerges under the water where organic life began. It swims through the subconscious of the dormant uh, of the dominant male society, occasionally bobbing to the surface to offer a glimpse of the rejected harmony. End quote. Patriarchal politics, religion, psychotherapy are always there, militant and quick, to tell us that this rejected harmony is childish, illusionary, crazy, blasphemous, or unpatriotic. And we should know by now its reasons for doing so. But a breakthrough in some very interesting clinical experiments conducted between 1975 and 1979, a variety of female, male and adolescent psychotherapy patients who received the subliminal message, mommy and I are one, 
flashed on a tetastoscope screen were much more successful and permanently successful at losing weight, stopping drinking and smoking, over and overcoming emotional problems to improve reading skills than their patient than their then were patients receiving neutral or no subliminal messages. Designed by psychologist Lloyd Silverman of New York University and described in his book The Search for Oneness, these studies show that successful over that successful overcoming of problems, i.e. mature development, does not come from severing the early infantile sense of unity with the mother, but reestablishing it. The holistic point, <coughs> excuse me, the holistic point of ancient women's religions was that the mother is not one's personal maternal parent solely, but the entire community of women the entire living earth, and beyond this, the entire surrounding and ongoing cosmic process. One could not be alienated because one is always within this process, as it is always within itself. Unless, of course, such knowledge is suppressed from the outside by patriarchal conditioning. Truly, our very sanity is at stake with continuing patriarchy and the denial of the cosmic self the goddess within all of us and with an us within her. The great mother was the projection of the self-experience of groups of highly aware and productive women who were the founders of much of human culture. In this sense, the great mother is not simply a mental archetype, but a historical fact. Ancient icons, symbols, and myths cannot be understood if they are disembodied from this fact. They cannot be understood as mind trips alone but must be seen in the context of ancient political realities. Robert Graves, Welsh poet, essayist, and historical novelist, was one of the few modern students of mythology who took those ancient female political realities seriously. In his two-volume work, The Greek Myths, Graves showed that the major theme of Greek myth was the gradual historic reduction of women from sacred beings to slaves. The dramatic core of Greek myth and drama is the actual transition circa 1300 BC from the from matriarchy to patriarchy and the, the Aegean and the re repercussions of this transition on the psyches of the Greek people. In The White Goddess, Graves traces the origins of the European great goddess, her connections with world mythologies and world alphabets, always a goddess invention, and her and her attempted obliteration by the Roman Empire and the Christian religion. Many feminists dislike Graves' interpretation of the goddess as, occasionally at least, a white bitch. But Graves' main concern is to relate to the goddess as a male poet and to rediscover the European roots of goddess worship. It remains for women to interpret the goddess as the woman, as the women lead, uh, relating to a woman, and only black women Asian women and Native American women can completely rediscover and reanimate the original goddesses of Africa, Asia, and the Americas for us. It's the job of white Europeans and Americans, after all, to stop explaining everyone else and to begin trying to understand ourselves and our own history. But when Graves shows in his exploration of early Greek and European goddesses that the loss of our mythic history is a loss of our socio-political history, he speaks to all of us. Probably the greatest student of ancient mythology as ancient female political history was uh, Robert Br Briffald, 
an anthropologist, gynecologist, and Marxist, Brifault spent 10 concentrated years of his life, thereby ruining his health, researching and writing his enormous work, The Mothers, probably the most thorough collection of evidence for the early existence of matripocal cultures and great goddess religions throughout the world. The data Brifault collected is global and irrefutable. Once we read Brifault and Graves, we can never again look at the goddess, at the great mother as a apolitical archetype, as some power image that exists in the minds only, but never in historical reality. Because the great mother was a historical reality, her psychological suppression all, also must be seen in historical terms as a political suppression of an earlier female-oriented world order by a later male-dominated one. Throughout Europe, especially Eastern Europe, but also in Spain, France, and Italy, we can find Black Madonnas. People have local legends to explain the blackness of these Virgin Mary statues, including the ingenious idea that the icon is charred, the miraculous survivor of a terrible fire. <laughs> Jungian interpreters would see the blackness as a subconscious reference to the dark side or some of something or other. The moon, no doubt. It really, um, it rarely, it is rarely speculated that a real historic blackness of the early goddess of Egypt and Africa is being recalled. But when we read Brifal and the other researchers into early mythic history and see not only the black African origins of the great mother, but the extent to which early matriarchal Africans traveled throughout the ancient world, spreading the black goddess, her pyramid technologies, stone and clay arts, and hieroglyphic scripts wherever, uh, hieroglyphic scripts everywhere, then it is easy to understand the existence of these black Madonnas. They are not psychological symbols of the dark side of the mother of Christ, or not solely or originally. They are solid iconic remains of, an, of the ancient time when the religion of the black goddess ruled Africa and from thence much of the rest of the world. Here's another in the adventure of mankind, the German scholar Eugene George argued that the Atlanteans were Ethiopians, quote, supreme in Africa and Asia, who also penetrated into Southern Europe. It was only, it was only after thousands of years of battle that these black Atlantean invaders were finally pushed out of Europe, but the genetic memory of Europeans still bears traces of this experience. George suggests that this ancient memory survives in the European dread of dragons. <laughs> okay. Who are, after all, loved and celebrated everywhere else on earth throughout Asia, India, Africa, Mexico, Central, uh, Central, Central and South America. For as George points out, the dragon painted on the insignia of kings was carried in the van of the black armies. The dragon that represents dark earth energies to those converted to the white sky guide beliefs. The coral dragon with its tail and its mouth that represents the ancient female holism to the all conquering linear male, such as a, such a dragon also historically was carried into Europe on the banners of the matriarchal Atlantean African invaders. The archetype is an archetype because it represents a past reality. Its power over us as internal image is so profound because it was once an experienced fact of the external material world. 
our history as a species is stored in our genes. And no matter how hard patriarchy tries to suppress our past, our past matriarchal history, it keeps bobbing to the surface in a worldwide in worldwide archaeological ruins, icons, and myths, as in our dreams. That is the end of chapter three. I don't think I am going to make it to chapter five, but we will try. Chapter four. Women as culture creators. When we say that women created most of early human culture, we are not trying to sound radical. The evidence is there, quite tangible. When we realize how many basic life industries were the inventions of women, cooking, food processing and storage, ceramics, weaving, textiles and design, tanning, dyeing, everything related to fire, chemistry, metallurgy, the medical art, the medicinal arts, language itself, and the first scripts and glyphs, grain, domestica grain domestication, animal domestication, religious imagery and ritual, domestic and sacred architecture, the first calendars and the origins of astronomy, and on and on, then we do not need to project our imaginations far back into the past to confirm these inventions. They are still around us today. They constitute our world, stolen and mechanized by several thousand years of patriarchal exploitation. Most of these inventions have been turned into grossly alienated and profiteering mass market industries. We do have to, we do have to use our imaginations to remember that all were once warm, personal, and lovingly tendered, tended arts and crafts originated and sustained by early communities of women. This information is radical in the true sense of the word. Radical com comes from radix, root, and means going to the root of things. These cultural inventions of early women were at the very root of human existence. They created what we know as human life. Evelyn Reed, an anthropologist, Marxist, and feminist, has written extensively about women's early cult women's early social forms and inventions. In the, <clears throat> in the myth of women's inferiority and women's evolution, Reed describes how human culture developed out of women's labor groups, interrelations, and first crafts. Quote, it was the female of the species who had the care and responsibility of feeding, tending, and protecting the young. However, as Marx and Engels have demonstrated, all societies, both past and present, are founded upon labor. So it was not simply the capacity of women to give birth that played the decisive role for all females give birth. What was decisive for the human species was the fact that maternity led to labor. It was in the fusion of maternity and labor that the first human social systems was founded. It was women who became the chief producers, the workers and farmers, the leaders in science, the leaders in scientific, intellectual, and cultural life. In the language of primitive peoples, the term mother is identical with producer procreatrix, end quote. It was a society where power was linked with real love. Among the earliest examples of Stone Age peoples found living today, such as the Kalihara Bushmen and the Bamabuti Pygmies of Africa, the same linkage occurs. Female authority is valued and both sexes are mothers to the young. Both sexes are mothers to the young. Um, contrary to the bloody 
to the bloody tooth and claw theories of popular aggressive aggression oriented anthropologists, evidence shows that the further back we go in human history, the gentler our species was. This is because the early matrifocal groups were concentrated on maintaining rather than exploiting life. Evelyn Reed shows that during the food gathering epoch stretching over thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, the human group's main nourishment was supplied by the women collectors who dug the earth for edible roots, plants, grubs, and collected fruit and nuts and hunted such small animals as lizard and hares. Large game hunting kept the men away for long periods of time and didn't always bring back enough meat. Among hunting, hunting and gathering peoples today, the women's food collecting activities provide 75 to 85% of their group's daily nourishment. Over, the thousand, over these thousands of years of food gathering, women's keen knowledge of herbs and plant properties was developed through trial and error, through trial and error testing and practical experience into the art of medicinal healing. Ultimately, women's food collecting developed into agriculture as women observed the relation between scattered seeds and plant growth. This female invention based on generations of experimentation with seed cultivation, cutting and grafting and grain storage brought about the vast Neolithic revolution of 10,000 BC. The women's digging sticks, the women's digging sticks were humanity's first tools. The women's work was the prototype for all the industry that followed. Much of, much of the small game that women hunted and stared was brought back alive to the camp. Sometimes the young of animals killed by the male hunters was captured and brought back alive too. These animals were often kept as pets and provided the first experiments in animal training and domestication, which finally led to stock breeding. Motherless animal young often suckled the women's breasts as captured bear cubs do today among the um, Ainu of, J of Japan. So even the domestication of animals had roots in women's maternity. Later, cattle breeding became an extremely male-oriented activity like so many others, but originally it was a woman's. Among the ancient Arabs, women not only made and owned the family tents, they also owned the herds. World myths, folk traditions, and anthropological studies agree that women first discovered how to use and produce fire. In a survey of 224 modern tribal societies, it was found that fires were made and tended always or usually by women in 84 of these societies. Almost all of these societies have legends telling of the early times when women were the exclusive owners of fire. Ritual maintenance of fire remained entrusted to women down through historic times, such as the Vestal Virgins of ancient Rome or the Irish, uh, Irish nuns of St. Bridget from the original, from the originally Celtic goddess Brigid or Bride, who tended a perpetual fire at Kildare until the suppression of the monasteries under Henry VIII. Fire is sacred to the moon mother, cooking uh, cooking, boiling, roasting, baking, steaming was only one of the techniques women acquired from their mastery of directed heat. Fire was the tool of tools. Through its use, foods could be dried and conserved for future use, and some poisonous plants and fruits made edible. It was women who developed all the early associated industries of cooking and ceramics, which fire was the critical tool. Women built the first granaries and storehouses for provisions. 
Some of these were sunk into the earth while on uh, while on marshy ground, they were upraised on stilts. Women domesticated the cat to protect these granaries from rodents. Cats, since the immemorial, immemorial time, had have had a special relationship with women. Among European witches, cats acted as familiars and were believed to have telepathic powers, which is why special bonfires were erected during the Inquisition to burn all the cats in town, along with the women. Industry, science, and human need were combined in women's work, and the daily tasks were infused with magical meaning. Women converted plants and herbs into medicines. Some substances discovered by women are still used today for their narcotic properties. And World, and World Health Organization figures show that 95% of the world's health care today is still provided by women using many of these ancient remedies. Women design and produce containers and vessels out of materials like wood, bark, fibers, and leather. Fire was used to hollow out wood, a technique that could then be used to make canoes and boats from tree trunks. All of these tremendous discoveries were related to the daily survival, to daily survival, yet they were also experienced as magic transformations of raw material into something completely different, especially through the alchemy of fire. Consider the chemistry of bread making, the planting of the seed, and its growth through the combinations of moon, sun, rain, and tealed earth, the careful harvesting and grinding the grain into flour. Then, with the correct combination of water, yeast, and fire, the original seed is transformed into bread for human food. The original beehive shape or domed ovens found all over the world could be used only by women, the oven was seen at seen symbolically as the belly of the great goddess. Many miniature pottery models have been found in the south and southeast Europe, depicting, depicting Neolithic shrines. In the shrines, there are oven clays, clay altars originally covered with wooden planks, horned thrones, figurines of women worshippers, and wall images showing rain symbols and the magical grinding of grain. In these regions, there are still women's rituals of celebration involving the sacred New Year bread dough, which is held communally in the upraised arms of the elder women of the group. The textile industries also originated in women's work. Women developed cordage techniques in the weaving of bark and grasses into blankets and text baskets and textiles. Women were the leather makers, tanning and working the skins, softening the skins by chewing them as the polar, as the polar Eskimos still do today. The skin scraper along with the digging stick as a, was a woman's tool everywhere and is still so, and is so still among the Eskimo people. The cured leather was then made into tents, clothes, boots, straps, and cords. These were brightly ornamented with vegetable and material dyes, another complex chemical process invented by women. Women were everywhere the first potters. In the world of the Maya, archaeologist Victor W. Von Hagen writes, quote, Pottery was woman. All we see of the remains of the Maya ceramic art was done by women. It is a fact that should be stressed. In almost every place where pottery making was at every place where pottery making was on an archaic level, Africa, Melanesia, pottery was woman made and its design woman inspired. Throughout the area of the Amazon, pottery was a woman's task. 
women were the potters, so far as we know in ancient Peru. Early Greek and even early early Greek and early Egyptian pottery was also woman made until the introduction of the potter's wheel. Sir, Sir Lindsay Scott is certain that it was only after, after the introduction of the potter's wheel that pottery became, as the drawings on the walls of Thebes show, exclusively masculine. This suggests that all superbly beautiful patterns found on pottery as well as weaving were conceived by women. Perhaps then art is a woman, end quote. Pot, pot making involved the creation of entirely new substances that did, that did not already exist in nature. The beginnings of pottery are unknown insofar as the first pots were unbaked and didn't survive. But the earliest fired ceramics found so far, including fine burnished and painted wares, date from the late 17th millennia BC. These already reveal a mastery of ceramic technology, mixing special kinds of earth with water in exactly the right proportions, molding a piece of clay into a shape, then heating it over 600 degrees in ovens or kilns built by women. The change must have seemed like a tra like magic transmutation from dust or mud into a substance almost as hard and durable as stone and a substance made with water that could hold water. Women decorated their pots. The coloring changes with the firing process. Art developed out of the potter's craft and out of the, and out of the pottery decorations developed. There is little doubt that written language so developed. Some pots were used for daily life, other for spiritual purposes. Sacred pots were painted with mystic symbols that became standardized over a millennia. And these acted as a kind of shorthand language understood by all. Among the people, there was a common understanding of the commonly held myth mythic tradition. Material fact and the ritual activity were shared daily between the women who made the pots and those who used them. The artists could therefore communicate abstractly through the magic signs. And over the ages, these symbols evolved into glyphs and then character or phonetic script. Graphic designs Ideograms were used for thousands of years in old Neolithic Europe. Mahira Gambutas in Goddesses and Gods of Old Europe, 6500 6, to 3500 BC, says that there were two categories of ideograms, those signifying water and rain, uh, which was zigzags, chevrons, meanders, and spirals, all related to the snake and bird goddess, and those related to the moon, to becoming, to the uh, veg vegetal life cycle, the rotation of the seasons, the birth and the growth of a, the birth and growth essential to life. These moon signs were the cross, <clears throat> were the cross, the encircled cross signifying the four quarters of the world, four quarters of the world, the year as a journey embracing the four cardinal directions of the cosmic cycle, the crescent the horns, the caterpillar, the egg, the fish. All were symbols of the continuum of life, which the ideograms were meant to ensure, and of the great moon god and, and of the great moon goddess of life and death, of cosmos, earth, and vegetation. The horns, the lunar crescent, and the cross were all originally alternative symbols for the waxing and waning moon. Uh, sequences of inscribed linear signs have also been found. These are a form of very ancient 
and until recently unknown Neolithic Calaclithic script dating from circa 5000 BC, which is 2000 years before the development of Sumerian literate civilization. According to male historical tradition, the earliest examples of written language were found at the temple of the queen of heaven and Eric, which was the sacred city of the Sumerian goddess. These were clay tablets inscribed about 5,000 years ago. But even then, the goddess at Eric had long been known as the inventor of clay tablets. Clay was sacred to women and the goddess of language and of the original alphabet and picture script. It is known that a special sacred language was used by women initiates of the goddess until the, until late in the Neolithic period. In 1973, the Peruvian ethnologist, Dr. Victoria de la Jara, proved to a Congress for Andean Archaeology at Lima that the Incas had had a script. She spent 10 years doing research on the geometrical patterns of Inca pottery and urns and had come to the conclusion that these patterns were, in fact, characters with a content, with a content ranging from the simple to the highly complex. They were language symbols relating historical events myths, and poetry with a grammar based on groupings of complementary colors. Generations of male scholars had claimed that the Incas had no, had used no language script. In fact, they were not looking in the right place or in the right way. That is the end of chapter four. So the last chapter I will go ahead and read since uh, it's a very short chapter and that will be it for this evening is the first speech, chapter five. Did women also develop spoken language? From the earliest hunting and gathering times, we know that the men spent long, silent, and often solitary days away on the hunt. It takes silence to track animals. Meanwhile, the women worked collectively in or near the camp, surrounded by children, talking and singing. Language must have developed in the first intimate relationships between mother and child and between women working together for the kinship for the kin group's daily sustenance. Alexander Mashak, renegade student of the Paleolithic period, has already proposed that proposed the thesis that human speech developed not among male hunters, but in a childhood setting among females working together. We can't go back in time to confirm this thesis, but we can confirm its probability by looking around us to looking around us at everyday life and at the development <clears throat> and at the development of individual speech. As William Aaron Thompson writes, food sharing in a home base, food sharing in a home base set up the ideal conditions for communication, babbling, clowning, and play. We all have seen how speech begins for each human child in this home atmosphere of babble and play. Sound communication begins between mother and child at the very beginning during the intense gazing between them in the days after birth. Thompson refers to recent studies of newborns one or two days old who move their arms and legs in rhythmic synchrony, rhythmic synchrony with the pulse of their mother's words. The newborn is literally dancing to language before she or he can utter a word. Even earlier, the child in the womb can hear the mother's voice and comes to recognize it a few months after birth. We also know that growing girls of all cultures and linguistic backgrounds are much more language proficient than boys of the same age. Finally, many mothers have the strong feeling that 
following birth, it is speech that takes pl- it is speech that takes the place of the umbilical cord. It is speech that continues to bind us quite viscerally to the growing child and through which passes the social food of instruction, warning, and communication with growing consciousness. It makes sense that we women who give birth to human life through our sexual or vaginal mouths would also give birth to human language through our social facial mouths. (laughs) What kind of language? Thompson has a fascinating idea that women's Plant collecting activities were related to the development of a kind of mental vocabulary dictionary and classification system. The gathering of useful plants is an exercise in establishing a cultural taxonomy of nature, precisely that kind of activity likely to establish a list and a grammar of discrete items. Plant gathering women would be involved in highly detailed tabulations of various plants and herbal properties, which what is edible, what is poison, what is medicinal, what is hallucinogenic, and in transferring this information onto others, over generations, an incredibly complex and replete botanic and pharmacopoeic catalog would be filed in each female mind. If you are a male hunter, it is not too hard to tell the difference between a mammoth and an elk. If you are a female food or medicine gatherer, the distinction between a poisonous and a non-poisonous mushroom or between two varieties of herbs, one toxic and one curative, can be very subtle, requiring most minute observation and a lot of educated guessing. A mistake could be lethal for many loved ones. So Thompson's observation makes sense. An important part of women's early language use would be a detailed observation and classification of floral and mineral of the floral and mineral environment, an experimental classification that was the origin of science. But no women, stone age to rock age, ever lived by head alone. The constant pattern of women's existence has been the need and the talent to link mental activity with physical activity, with emotional activity, all encircled in these beginning times with the aura of spiritual activity. So early women's scientific language, because that's what plant gathering is, a science, would be uttered side by side with the emotional language of social relations and the physical language of the body moving through daily tasks. And surrounding all of these would be the symbol language of sexual spiritual celebration. The first symbols did not arise from the mind alone, but from the holistic experiencing of mind, body, sex, heart, soul, and world all moving together as one. This is the dream body language of women's ancient rituals. Dream body language is the deepest type of thinking. It is the right brain thinking. It is the thinking of magic and poetry in which left brain language is used for nonlinear, non-logical expression. And it is the mode of perception and power that Western culture has scorned to its own harm. A good deal of Robert Graves' research into the defeat of Mediterranean and European matriarchy by patriarchy focuses on this suppression by male linear logic of the earlier synthetic holistic language process. Graves says in The White Goddess, quote, The language of poetic myth anciently current in the Mediterranean and Northern Europe was a magical language bound up with the popular religious ceremonies in honor of the moon goddess or muse, some of them dating from the old stone age 
and this remains the language of true poetry. The language was tampered with in the late Minoan times when invaders from Central Asia began to substitute patrilinear for matrilinear institutions and remodel or falsely uh, falsify the myths to justify social changes. Then came the early Greek philosophers who were strongly opposed to magical poetry as threatening their new religion of logic. And under their influence, a rational poetic language now called the classical was elaborated in honor of their patron, Apollo, and imposed on the world as the last word in spiritual illumination, a view that has prevailed practically ever since in European schools and universities where myths are now studied only as quaint relics of the nursery age of mankind, end quote. Once again, this academic contempt of myth and magic poetry is analogous to the attitudes of psychoanalysts and Christian theologians, theologians uh, towards what they call primitive and infantile or pagan thought processes. But in fact, it was in this nursery age, guarded, led, and elaborated by women, that all the basic inventions essential to human culture were born. And these primary industries, tools, arts, medicines, daily objects, and alchemic processes did not arise from logic centers of the brain alone, but were the products of dream thinking, of holographic thinking, of mythic ritual and poetic communication between women and their environment. Man's hard-headed, pragmatic civilizations have been living off these first enchanted female inventions ever since. Poetic thinking is non-dualistic. Paradox and ambigu ambiguity are not exercised um, as illogical demons, but are felt and synthesized. The most ancient becomes the most modern, for in the holographic universe, each subjective part contains the objective whole. And chronological time is just one aspect of a simultaneous universe. Subjective and objective merge into an experience of cosmic oneness. Such as thought mode, of course, does not build, uh, such a thought mode, of course, does not build huge political and corporate empires like Rome or General Motors. For these purposes, men have devised a language of logical precision in which words can be used like knives to chop up the continuous life into mechanically unrelated parts in which the visible, i.e. the intellectually possessable, uh, the intellectually possessable dimension is stressed at the expense of the oral, tactile, affective, and mystic dimensions. With such a partial language, all kinds of destructive manipulations are possible against the earth and her creatures, against the psyche itself. Rationalistic language is used to make lying, exploiting, enslaving, torturing, and murdering seem nice and legal, not to mention God's will and the great material progress. The languages of the primitive peoples, though not written, are as complex as languages of literate peoples. Pre-literate peoples' brains are in no way inferior to the brains of the civilized. In fact, their memories and powers of concentration are much stronger. No African Bushman or Australian Aboriginal child could ever be dismissed as having only ten mi a 10-minute atten attention span, as teachers characterize American school children today. But primal people do see the world in a different way. 
the practical and the sacred are not separated by the knife of logic. The individual soul is not severed from the world womb of the mother. And this is where we all begin. What happened to us? Our primordial and practical material magical perceptions of oneness between ourselves and the universe is the innate female state, which in this modern patriarchal world, we are all supposed to grow out of in order to become men. In the place of our ancient female mode of being, now referred to as primitive animism, the academic psychotherapist, God logicians, God, God logicians, existential poetry technicians, and new car salesmen offer, offer us their own product called the agony of alienation, otherwise known as everyday life, which you can fix temporarily by buying something. This is how they talk, man has struggled for centuries to free his divine spirit from the paralyzing fetters of the material cosmos, i.e., in his mind, he is disembodied. Imagination, the mother of human memory and creative mental powers, is assigned to the female realms, to biology and childhood. Jehovah, Socrates, modern hardware, and the GNP bid men to leave these picture-forming but infantile habits of the soul and to turn to an abstract thought. As men, we are to be given new bodies and new worlds by the father logos, batteries included, while Mother Nature remains at work as a servant of this enterprise, her energies and resources used to realize his thought forms and achieve his goals. The earth, the body, the soul, and the imagination will be allowed to survive only as handmaidens of the great male mind up in the sky. So the patriarchs have been talking. In their religions, their philosophies, their physical sciences, their politics and economics, their behavioral and psychoanalytical systems for over 2,000 years. What are they really saying? We have only to look around us to see his vision for us. Robots, computer hearts, satellite missiles, ground zero, cruising nuclear penises targeting cities in barbed wire bondage. Our flesh has never been good enough for him. His babies are all quite metalloid, and these are our new bodies and our new worlds. He has so extracted, he has so abstracted himself from the female imagination and the cosmic material fetters of mother nature that he is just about to blast himself entirely out of the picture and everything with him. Abstract thought, after all, was the condition of the universe before the female imagination began its childish picture-forming activity. Another word for it is entropy, the static show on the TV screen in the absence of an image. We will get a glimpse of his ultimate flesh-free, <laughs> flesh-free vision for ourselves just as he and his boys push the final button as we get to watch ourselves, the world, and everything in it dematerialize before our eyes courtesy of his advanced anal technology. For the ultimate feeling of the master, male mind, for his servant, female nature, is not love, but necrophilic contempt and the Apothesis of contempt is a brutal will toward total annihilation. So how did we get here? On the ground level of being, the average adult member of a hunting-gathering culture, even in some environments called sparse by our standards, 
worked only 15 hours a week to fulfill to fill sustenance needs. The rest of the time was spent in leisure activity, arts and crafts, spiritual ecstasy, running, swimming, making love, laughing, eating, goofing around. In our advanced Western culture, the average male's work week is 45 hours. The average female's is 77 hours. A lot of employed people seem to be working more and more and enjoying it less. The unemployed and underemployed are working less and enjoying it less. Certainly, there is less joy, grace, creativity, and wonder in our average daily life than there is in the daily experience of the average Kalahari Bushman or Australian outback Martakuja, those who are left. We don't have to prove this statement. We believe we all, we believe we all know somewhere deep in our beings that it is so. Modern existence in the long run profits very few at the expense of too many. And so how did we get here and how do we get out? That is the end of chapter five. So tomorrow when I come back, probably after my grandchildren have gone to sleep, we will be getting the second section of the book, which is called Women's Early Religions. And we will begin at chapter six, which is the first mother. So I want to thank all of you who tuned in, who watched live. Obviously, you can go back, you know, at a more decent hour of the day and rewatch and follow along in your book. If you are interested in participating in the um, in the book club for this book uh, or attending the um, classes that I'm doing the first and third Sunday of every month, um, on this book, then you can look in the description below. The links for the Facebook, um, the Facebook link for the book club is there and all the information that you need is there about the book, the book club, the meeting times and any additional information that you would need. Also, um, the book is available online and you can find the link for that book inside the book club, um, on Facebook. So also I think my email is in this message. If it's not, I'll tag it. I'll, I'll place it in the link below. You can email me or get in touch with me um, on uh, as Iapo Engina on Twitter. Um, Moyende, actually, let me do Release Heart Center on um, release.heart.center on IG, release.heart.center on IG. And if you want to, you know, if you want to email me, if you have any commentary, uh, or any questions or what have you, then you can email me at releaseheartcenter at gmail.com. Thank you again for tuning in, and I will see you again tomorrow night with Chapter 6, Reading of the Great Cosmic Mother, Rediscovering the Religion of the Earth. <laughs>